Hello and welcome back to Kleptocracy and Corruption Afghanistan. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Miller, Professor of the Practice of International Affairs, Global Politics, and Security Co-Chair at the Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Service. Dr. Miller is a former U.S. Army Intelligence Analyst, Analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency, and a published intellectual in the fields of international relations, security studies, and religion. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining me for this interview. Um, as I said earlier, I've been looking forward to it quite some time now. I've read some of your work on your website, and I've just been very captivated by it. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So why don't we start a little bit with how you got into your role in the military and intelligence and what motivated you to get into that? Because I was really interested by the fact that you'd been deployed to Afghanistan as well. So I joined the Army uh, when I was in graduate school uh, about 18 months before 9-11. Um, at that point, I went. I had gone straight from my undergraduate to my graduate degree, my master's degree, and I had done nothing with my life but read books and write papers, which I enjoy and, and I, I like doing it, but I kind of felt like there was more to life and I could do more, so I should do more. And uh, that, that led me eventually to join the Army uh, as an intelligence analyst, and then I was uh, available then to be deployed to Afghanistan in the summer of 2002. So what was your experience like on the ground there? Because if I'm correct, it said you were deployed at Bagram, which I've heard is just a massive base. So what was your experience there in the heart of the war at 2001? Yeah, so I was there in 2002, just to be clear. Oh, 2002. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so Bagram uh, grew to become, uh, I think, maybe the largest or one of the largest uh, coalition bases in the country. But when I was there, it was early days. Uh, there was only, I think, a couple thousand troops there at Bagram, if that. And it was tent city. It was We lived in tents. We worked in tents. There was a couple of buildings, but uh, I, I didn't rank highly enough to get into them. <laughs> so it was a life, uh, you know, sleeping and working in tents. Um, I, I remember thinking that the security was shockingly uh, um, thin because we were, this was so early that we were still filling sandbags to line the tents and, uh, create the perimeter around the, around the place. So, uh, later on it became a fortified, you know, a fortress, uh, but not, not in the time I was there. There was a, um, airstrip and of course we used it to fly in all the logistics and, and resupply. But at the far end of the airstrip was what we called the Soviet, uh, the, the aircraft graveyard. They had just uh, scores of heavy equipment, old helicopters, jets, tanks uh, that were left over from the Soviet-Afghan war. And they were derelict. They weren't working, but we would jog around and use that as part of our route uh, during our PT. Very interesting. So moving from that to um, some of your work, I was really captivated by your article, Five Steps to Better Policy in Afghanistan. Because when I started this podcast, so much of the stuff I read was just saying, you know, how bad our policy was in Afghanistan, but no one was giving really um, good steps that we could have done. So you talk about devolving power, and I think people are so often quick to blame that the U.S. created the power structure in Afghanistan. And But you pointed out that the Afghans were the one to create that system and concentrate so much power in the executive. So how do you think that hindered their political system? Yeah. So the Afghan political system dates to the 1890s when King Abdurrahman Khan first started to uh, centralize 
authority and control behind the throne in Kabul. It had been barely a state before that, uh, so highly decentralized as to be almost autonomous fiefdoms. Now, Abdurrahman Khan was a tyrant and he um, centralized at the point of a gun and it was a pretty brutal reign. What happened in the 20th century is that the kings kept their prerogatives on paper, but rarely exercised them in practice. And so the constitutions of Afghanistan, up to and including the 1964 democratic constitution, were all highly centralized. Uh, and the king on paper could do, you know, whatever he wanted. He was a constitutional monarch. Um, in 2003, when they began to rewrite the Afghan constitution, they took the 1964 constitution and they did copy paste. And then they replaced king with president. So again, on paper, highly centralized. President Karzai made a mistake and tried to actually exercise those powers. Afghanistan is a decentralized society. It's a decentralized economy. It's a decentralized way of life. And it would probably work better with a decentralized government. Uh, the fact that it had a centralized government isn't the United States' fault. We didn't do it. We didn't foist it on them. We also maybe could have done a little bit better to advise them to adopt a more decentralized system. I know there was efforts. I know that some of our advisors and diplomats tried to, but of course, there's only a limit to how much we can do in dictating another country's political system. Yeah, those are some great points because I think ever since we pulled out of Afghanistan, people have been more captivated by the issue. I've been just seeing so much how like we tried to copy and paste our system on them, but that's far from the truth. Yeah, it... it <laughs> Our system uh, is imperfect, but um, particularly when it comes to political parties, our system is way better than what they came up with. Uh, they adopted um, a, a very strange voting system called the single non-transferable vote that it's too complicated even for me to try to explain it. But the net effect is that it makes political parties play no role in their system, which is actually really regrettable. Uh, you ask any political scientist, comparative political scientists. And I'll tell you that political parties are actually really important. We don't like them here in America because we got two corrupt illiberal parties. But in, in parliamentary systems, parties are really important for aggregating interests and moderating demands and uh, being the vehicle through which you do log ruling and, and negotiation and compromise. But the Afghan system, the new one created after 2001, effectively sidelined political parties where they played no meaningful role in politics. That does explain part of why their political system over 20 years was fragmented, uh, unconsolidated, and never really gelled, even though the Afghans really liked their constitution. It, public opinion polls show the Afghans really liked it. They just wanted it to work better. One of the things that prevented it from working better was the absence of political parties. That was actually the next point that I wanted to get to was I was trying to understand that um, sort of you know voting system with their parties and everything. And I found your point really interesting about they should that there should have been an effort to incorporate the Taliban maybe as a political party because it kind of if I was understanding you right they just ostracize them as completely the enemy and then you don't foster any type of future where there can be synthesis between the Taliban and the rest of Afghan society. So, so I wrote that article some time ago and my thinking on this has evolved a little bit. Um, I'll put it this way. I could have envisioned a different outcome to the war that involved uh, a peaceful Taliban political party running in the Afghan democratic elections. It would not have involved the senior Taliban leadership because they condemned democracy as un-Islamic. But it would have involved 
some of their more moderate members and foot soldiers who wanted the name and the reputation and the label, the brand name uh, of the Taliban, but they also wanted to stop shooting each other. And so I think that was a plausible pathway that we never uh, explored enough. There was some there was some talk about it back in 2012 or so when we first started trying to negotiate with the Taliban. It just didn't get off the ground. I will say this, and this is maybe where my thinking has changed a bit. One of the common criticisms of the United States effort is that we should have involved the Taliban from the very first, from in the bond process, in the emergency lawyer jurga, that we should have reached out immediately and that the failure to do so was kind of the original sin that condemned this entire effort. I want to make sure that I say that I don't think that's true. Uh, I've looked very closely at this just in the last few months as I've done research on this. There was no meaningful opportunity to reach out to the Taliban in those early days, months, and years. In fact, the Bush administration tried immediately after 9-11, in the days after 9-11, they tried to reach out to the Taliban, first through intermediaries with Pakistan, second, uh, and I just read this in George Tenet's memoir, the CIA directly reached out to Afghan officials in the days after 9-11. President Bush publicly reached out in his speech on September 20th, 2001. So there was several efforts to reach out to the Taliban and say, hey, look, our beef is not with you, it's with Al-Qaeda. And the Taliban turned them down. Every single opportunity, they turned them down. So I don't buy the narrative that we could have brought them in early and that it was our refusal that condemned us and put us on a, a collision course with the Taliban. It was the Taliban's refusal, not ours. So that's, I want to make clear about that. And that's very interesting because that then goes back to what I've been saying, how people are constantly putting the U.S. At the point, from the point of view that they're the ones who say dictated everything when really it's yeah. a two-way street. Like you're saying, mm -hmm. the Taliban also has to be willing to yeah. come together. If they can't, obviously we know what happens. So, um, can we talk about a little bit about the different uh, policies of the various administrations, such as, you know, Bush's light footprint, um, light footprint type of thing. And then Obama's um, change in policy with the surge. And then ultimately the doubts and the, hard withdrawal deadlines, which you say is not, wasn't, wasn't very advantageous to our mission there. So, uh, we were, you know, the proverbially, we didn't fight a 20 year war. We fought a one year war 20 times. Um, that's, that's a bit of, you know, that's one of the inside jokes of people who worked on Afghanistan for any length of time. Um, the policies in Afghanistan changed every two to three years. Uh, and you can periodize the war by how we treated it. Um, the Bush administration in 2001 and 2002 uh, thought they fought and won um, a war against the Taliban by overthrowing them and helping uh, back a new interim administration. And they thought the war was primarily against Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups worldwide. And if you look at their writings and their speeches in 2003, 4, 5, when they say the war, they mean the war against Al-Qaeda. To them, there is no war against the Taliban in those years they refer to Afghanistan as a completed, finished success story. It's really interesting that for three years or so, there was no war in American policymakers' mindset. Uh, it was a reconstruction problem, but they had largely passed it off to the Europeans, to the United Nations and other institutions to do that. Well, we continued to play whack-a-mole with terrorists. Then around 2006 and seven, there is a growing recognition that there's actually, you know, the Taliban are back. There's an insurgency. We need to do something about it. And so President Bush changed his policy. You know, previous it had been the light footprint, counterterrorism only. 
uh, with kind of offloading reconstruction to the others. In the last two years, Bush changes course. He doubles the troop presence, Americanizes a lot of the reconstruction efforts, and begins to build the foundations for a counterinsurgency strategy. By the end of his administration, it's not very robust because Iraq is overshadowing everything, and you just you know they're they're unable to give Afghanistan the bandwidth that it requires. But Bush does kind of lay that groundwork, and then Obama comes in, and he calls it the Good War. He says we're going to win it. He does his own strategy review, and he largely embraces the kind of approach that Bush had been building towards. And he says, we're going to do coin, we're, and he triples the U.S. troop presence, uh, which I think was appropriate considering what the Taliban were doing. But as you referenced there, uh, Robert, the, unfortunately, President Obama and his administration, they undermine their own policy. They, they began to have doubts rather publicly, even as they were still deciding on the policy. So President Obama announces the surge in December 09 and also announces their withdrawal at the same time. And every, you know, his critics at the time universally said this is a bad idea because it incentivizes the Taliban to wait us out. And now here we are a decade later, it's very clear that the critics were correct. Um, and I've been, you know, interviewing former officials from the past three administrations for my own research. And I have found virtually nobody who defends the withdrawal uh, announcement. Uh, I think everyone recognizes that it was strategically counterproductive, that it undermined President Obama's own policy, it incentivized hedging behavior among our allies, and incentivized the Taliban to wait us out. All of that has come to pass. So while the surge was appropriate and showed some military progress on the ground, and while the counterinsurgency approach showed some promise, it was starved of the one resource it most needed, which was time. And that is why the Obama administration, uh, their, their approach ultimately was not successful. Uh, and then there's another story when they get to the end of the administration, but, but I've talked a lot. So <laughs> let me pause, let me pause there. Yeah. So that connects, that connects a lot to, um, what you were saying. And it was another article from 2014, forgive me for going back. I was just, uh, um, delving through those various works, but, um, where you talked about how the United States should keep troops in Afghanistan for a decade or even longer. And you cite the capacity of the Afghan security forces, the intelligence, and their logistical ability. And what um, what strikes me about that is how, from what you're telling me, the the project or the mission in Afghanistan seems to not have really like taken full effect till about 2009-ish. So it makes complete sense for us to stay over a decade or longer. So in hindsight, obviously we can see you were right. Why do you think officials were so adamant about pulling out of Afghanistan when this information seems to be pretty prevalent throughout the community? So the reason I thought it was appropriate for us to stay is that from 2014 forward, the United States had uh, happened upon a sustainable presence. I'd say happened upon because it wasn't necessarily the result of a conscious policy choice it was rather what we stumbled into when everything else failed. <laughs> As uh, I think Bismarck or, or Churchill is supposed to have said, the, the United States always does the right thing after it exhausts the alternatives, right? And that's kind of what happened in Afghanistan. By 2014, we had a very small presence, about 10,000 troops, or uh, it kind of hovered between 10 and 15 or, or 8 and 14 or so. And uh, the American troops were not on the firing line. We were not on the front lines. They were not dying in combat in large numbers. We lost an average of one troop 
per month for seven years. It's, it's really not a war for the United States. It certainly is a war for the Afghans because tens of thousands of them died in combat against the Taliban. But the United States was providing logistics, air cover, support, medevac, intelligence. We were simply not on the front lines. And so it was affordable, it was sustainable, it was low risk, and it allowed the Afghans to keep their army in the field and keep the Taliban at bay. I don't think this is an optimal strategy. I have some problems with it. I have some lots of criticisms of it, but it was sustainable. Um, and again, in my conversations with other policymakers, they continue to reference Korea as an example of where we fought a war, stayed afterwards, and never left, but that our presence provided a security umbrella, which allowed them to put the pieces back together and uh, over three decades, eventually transition to democracy and, and so forth. And now South Korea is the ninth largest economy in the world and a key ally in Southeast Asia, right? So that was maybe a model that we could have envisioned gravitating towards over decades and decades if we had stayed with our sustainable strategy. Your question is, why didn't we? Right? Why did we leave? Why did we pull the plug? Well, partly because, um, you know, by the time we get to about 2018, 19, 20, maybe earlier, the American people wanted to leave, right? The public opinion polls say that the American people thought it was time to go. They were uh, maybe bored or frustrated with the war. Americans did not understand the war. They believed or felt that it was a losing effort because they believed the uh, misleading, false uh, media reporting and the really mendacious um, talking points from demagogic politicians who characterized it wrongly as a, quote, endless war. Uh, and that's you know turned uh, public opinion in a pretty negative direction. And we live in a democracy. So when a majority of Americans want to leave, they're going to elect somebody like Donald Trump who says it's time to go. And Donald Trump, um, whatever else you think of him, is probably not best characterized as a foreign policy genius. Right? Uh, he he actually did approve a policy in 2017-18 that was okay, another, a minor escalation, a lot more bombing, no deadline. But, but then he fired his national security advisor and his secretary of defense quit. And in 2018-19-20, he pursues negotiations with the Taliban with essentially no preconditions. His only negotiating instruction to his State Department is get us out. And when the Taliban hear that, and, and Trump pub pretty much said it publicly, the Taliban know that they've won. And so they're willing to sign a piece of paper and have no expectation of actually abiding by anything in it. So they sign a piece of paper in February of 20 with a pretty clear understanding that they're going to win the war and take over the country. And I think everybody knew at that point that that's what's, what was going to happen. The United Nations publicly said after the deal was signed in February of 20, that the Taliban continued to work with Al-Qaeda. And, and the United Nations is not a warmongering pro-American empire kind of organization. If they are the ones saying the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are still aligned, you know there's a problem. And so President Biden comes into office and he had been a fierce critic of the war since his time as vice president. And he just wants to finish what the Obama administration started. He sees this deal that Trump has signed. It's his get out of jail free card. He can blame everything on his predecessor and still pull the plug on the troops and, and get out of Dodge. It's weird to me because President Biden repudiated everything else about Trump's legacy, but this is the one thing he chooses to honor, the, the peace deal with the Taliban. It's very odd. I think that Biden clearly had an opportunity to repudiate the peace deal, the so-called peace deal, and stay in Afghanistan and reevaluate the situation. But of course, he had his own reasons. He, 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 himself, he agreed with it. Like He agreed with the need to get out. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's Trump's peace deal. It's Biden's withdrawal following the polls out the door 
against America's interests and against the stability and security of the world. Yeah, and so the those insights also like lead into the, one of the main goals of this podcast, which is to try to educate um, ordinary people who aren't in this field about what actually was going on more than what they just read in the normal media or you know in various simple articles with just big headlines. So one thing that I've found that a lot of people put forth is um, I saw that you're a critic of the Afghan papers, which I found really interesting because I got it to, got to have a different perspective on that. But they also put forth the idea that it was inevitable that we were going to fail and our policy there was not sustainable from the start. From our conversation, I know that that isn't true. Um, so why don't we talk about some successes from our time in Afghanistan? Because I think it's only right that in a time where we're, everyone talks about the failures, we also acknowledge some of the good we did. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that failure was in- inevitable is um, is wrong. Um, it's that's the same thing that President Biden said when he pulled the troops out. He said, "Look, we, you know, we've essentially already lost, and we just need to recognize it and pull the plug," which conveniently absolves us and absolves him of responsibility for his decisions. If he portrays it as an inevitability, well, then there's nothing we could have done, um, and and it makes us seem guiltless for our own mistakes and our own errors of judgment, and our own, I think, our own moral cowardice. Uh, there are actually decisions we could have made differently, and, that's, and, this, and things could have played out differently. I don't know that we could have won a straightforward, clean-cut military victory, but look, we essentially chose the worst possible outcome. So don't tell me we couldn't have made something marginally better. There's a range of possible outcomes here, and we might have ended up with something a little better than what actually happened. We've already talked about a couple of the decisions that were poor, the light footprint, uh, the withdrawal deadline, the peace deal, the decision to withdraw, all could have been made differently and things would have looked different. Um, There were some successes along the way, as you rightly highlight. There are things that we got right. Um, The Afghan constitution that the Afghans wrote had its problems, but it was popular and legitimate. The, The Afghan people largely saw it as a good political system. And the Asia Foundation's polling in Afghanistan for 20 years consistently showed the Afghans liked the ideals of democracy. They liked uh, elections, representation, parliament. They like being governed that way. And most uh, aspects of human rights were also quite popular. Uh, They liked the idea that the government shouldn't oppress them, right? So these ideas are, are popular and it was good for us to support that. The Afghan economy grew quite strongly in the early years and grew moderately over the course of the 20 years. Whole new sectors of the economy uh, grew up from the ground, huge construction sector and uh, uh, a a telecommunications sector that didn't exist 20 years ago. Riddled with corruption and all kinds of problems. I know that there's problems with the Afghan economy, but there's some successes too that we can point to. other successes would include uh, the, the 20 years the Afghans experienced of relatively more open life. Uh, think about the Afghan women. They just had the 20 best years of the last century. And let's not undercount that. That's a good thing. And we can be proud of that and lament that it didn't last longer. More broadly, I think the 20 years of relatively open life that many Afghans experienced will always be a memory and it will be always be part of Afghan history so that someday 
if and when there's an opportunity to return to that, they can build off of what they previously experienced. I just told you how in 2003, they used the 1964 constitution. It really matters that there are historical precedents within Afghanistan that future Afghans can draw on. And now they can draw on the brief democracy of the 60s and 70s and the longer democracy of the, of the 2010s, uh, the, the, the aughts and the teens um, in some future date. And that's a good thing. And it is a success that I'm sorry didn't last longer. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because um, you'll talk about how just fragile our democratic system is and ingraining that experience of democracy in their psyche is going to be extremely important down the line too, especially with, you know, we're seeing this huge humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan now. And you got to think the last 20 years is in their mind and it's present to them that they eventually may want to try to reestablish that. We can hope and we can pray. Uh, it's hard to tell what things will look like. You're right. There's a humanitarian crisis unfolding there right now. There's also a terrorism crisis, right? Uh, by withdrawing, we have handed the state over to Al-Qaeda, to ISIS, to the Taliban. It's unclear to me that the Taliban actually control the country. Um, there are no fans of ISIS, but I think ISIS has persisted. And uh, I don't know that the terrorist safe haven will be as overt as it was 20 years ago. And I also know that our homeland security is better than it was 20 years ago. But it's nonetheless true that Al-Qaeda and now ISIS have greater f operational freedom uh, than, than they've had in 20 years. For 20 years, we kept them on the run. Um, their primary concern was, was with survival and operational security and evading our drones and our special forces. They don't have to worry about that now. Now their primary concern is recruiting, fundraising, training, and planning the next attack. That should scare everybody, right? And that is the net effect of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. So that being said, do you think the current terrorist threat is probably the most significant um, outcome of the of our withdrawal from Afghanistan for the international community as a whole? Or do you think there's a, another bigger problem? I mean, uh, um, or not... are they all, or there's just, I'm basically asking, what do you think is the most significant um, problem that we're going to have to deal with as an international community now that we're not present in Afghanistan? The, the consequences of our withdrawal are most directly, uh, you know, Taliban victory, um, national oppression for the Afghans, particularly for the ethnic minorities and for women, um, and the reestablishment of terror safe haven, which is, should be of concern to the entire world. Uh, there's also some outward ripple effects. I think it's bad for regional stability. I think it's bad for regional economic development. I think it's bad for NATO's reputation. Um, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how it affects Iran. I'm not actually sure what, how that'll play out. But those are lesser ripple effects. The main consequence is the oppression of the Afghans and our greater risk of terrorism. So, you know, I just want to finish up with talking about um, what my listeners, students, aspiring policymakers like myself, what are things that we can keep in mind as we delve, start our careers and try to maybe get into intelligence and policy? What are some skills or things we can keep in mind so we don't repeat similar mistakes to, say, what we've had in Afghanistan? Um, give me a couple of years to finish my book, and then I'll, uh, <laughs> then I'll answer that question. Um, one of them is to uh, 
recognize and be able to distinguish between true subject matter expertise and pundits hot takes. I think there was a lot of pundits hot takes about Afghanistan over the years that were deeply unhelpful for, for wise policymaking. And if policymakers that sit down and talk to real, you know, and I'm not talking about myself, I was not a deep subject matter expert at the time. Um, if they had talked to the people who knew what they were talking about on Afghanistan, uh, th they might have been more consider, been more mature in their decision making. So that's one one lesson. Um, I think another one is uh, what struck me is that many of the people who worked on Afghanistan over the years knew and recognized that it was a failing effort, but we kept on plodding away in the hopes that like something will change, something will turn this around. And I only have encountered a couple of people who just banged their fists on the table and said, we're losing, we've got to change now, who really kind of raised this up with a level of urgency that it, that it merited, right? Ambassador Ron Newman, I think is one. He, he did that in 2006 or so. Um, H.R. McMaster uh, in 2017, 18, he's another one. And I think that maybe I, I want to see more of that. If you're serving in government and you see something that is wrong or failing or a waste that is not uh, advancing America's interest and is wasting the lives and the, and the sacrifice of everybody working on it, bang your fist on the table and say so. Even if you're the junior guy in the room, we need more of that um, uh, vocational courage to say the things that nobody wants to say. It's unpopular to say we're losing, but if we are, it's wrong to not say that. Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge takeaway because so many people are, you know, they're caught up in how oh, I don't want to say the controversial or the wrong thing, but it's important to the success of our country that we say the right thing and acknowledge yeah. our errors in the process. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me. Also, thank you for your service to our, our country. Um, I really appreciate it. And I've had a very enjoyable time reading your work. It's some great perspectives. And, um, you know, I'm very excited to meet you in person in the fall and happy to be associated with the same university you are. So um, and, and thank you so much. Yeah, congratulations. And I uh, look forward to seeing you at Georgetown. Um, and great, you know, I'm so encouraged that you're doing this podcast. Uh, there's a lot to reflect on and a lot to learn uh, from 20 years. And if we don't learn anything, shame on us. I'd love to uh, have another conversation in a few years when I finish writing my book on the subject and see if I have anything different to say. <laughs> Definitely. That'll be a, I'm very, I'll look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Robert, Thank so much. You. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.